whatever you need. Yeah, I I appreciate you again doing this. No, I was looking forward to it, man. <laughs> yeah. So no, this is uh, should, should be a good time. And the fact that you gave me uh, some of your music that is just spectacular. Oh, I, my pleasure, man. That. Hey, <laughs> how long have you been playing? Um, wow, jeez, it, it's got to be tw- over twenty-five years playing, you know, guitar and. Oh, wow. That, that's yeah that's what i started playing and then ventured into playing bass and then actually upright bass mm-hmm. and now it's kind of you know i got turntables got all sorts of instruments and stuff and i, I try to get my kids into that too so i saw that on the on your law firm's website you all do you also dj um i <laughs> not as much um you know with, with the pandemic and everything uh mm-hmm. the, the places have kind of shut down but I, I have done things in the past and i'd like to start that up again mm-hmm that's really cool. That's I I don't have a musical bone in my body. So I envy <laughs> So you say that, but you never you know, hey, that those those forty fives could be the start of a promising DJ career, man. You never know. <laughs> that that was always I did do piano uh when I was super, super little, but I, I never kept up with it. I wish I did now because I feel like I could do so many cool things if you know piano. It's true. But it's never too late, you know. It's it's not like something like a skateboarding or a snowboarding where it's never too late for that, but you're you know, mm-hmm. you're dealing with knees and aging like, you know, guitar is something you can do for the rest of your life. So I have noticed that with I do Brazilian jiu-jitsu. Oh, okay. And I've noticed that with guys who have previous wrestling experience, they come in and they're just on another whole another level and I, I never wrestled before like in high school and stuff. And I've been training for five years, five plus years now, but you give me a wrestler who's wrestled his whole life and comes into jujitsu, they're just, they already have like that grit and the ability to do takedowns. And you give me that and we can build a pretty good jujitsu athlete off that. We can teach you everything else. That's true. It's got those fundamentals locked down. Yeah. Yeah. But jujitsu is hard on it's kind of hard on your body sometimes. Oh, I can imagine. Yeah, a hundred percent. I I was training yesterday. I feel it today. Um, but do you have to like do the ice baths and everything after you I, I, that whole process? I I'm not the biggest fan of cold. Okay, so I don't do those. But sauna. I okay. Mean, well, I that, like hey, heat. you got some sort of recovery. Yeah. Built in. Yeah, Did the heat to. shock proteins and recover yeah <laughs> yeah no man that's that's what's up <laughs> well um everybody out there thank you very much for joining uh, my name is chris this is Cheetash, and i'm joined by a very special guest uh aaron sylvanus am i pronouncing that correctly you are and most people don't so first try man that's oh nice <laughs> very very nice aaron uh can you explain for the audience what you do yeah, so I am a uh, intellectual property uh, business and entertainment litigator. Um, I've been doing that for about a little over a decade. Um, I've been with the same firm, Cohen Rabinovitz, in uh, in Royal Oak, practically my whole career. Uh, prior to that, I was the the last clerk to come out of Sharfos and Christensen, which was a big uh, plaintiff side PI, and did a lot of cool stuff downtown, mm-hmm. and. Uh, just kind of always uh, had that entertainment side to to dabble in not only being a musician myself, but also 
um, just some of the cases that went through those firms. So I uh, just managed to, to parlay that and keep that going. And, and prior to becoming a lawyer, I worked in the music industry, which is kind of a unique little background uh, aspect. So yeah, so that's that's what I do. When, when you worked in the music industry, like did you work for um, like the big three, so to speak? I did. Yeah. Um, so back, I, I want to say, you know, back in the mid-2000s, there was still a major label presence in Detroit through distribution offices. So I know, you know Sony, Warner, and Universal, who I worked for, had mm-hmm. uh, their distribution arms up in Troy. So I worked for Universal. I actually, I interned there for a, for a summer and then managed to uh, come on as a college and marketing lifestyle representative for the company, um, doing different uh, promotions for new signed acts and other you know, legacy acts at kind of the college campuses throughout the Michigan and, and Ohio. And I was going to Ann Arbor at the time, University of Michigan, oh, go nice. blue. Same. And yeah. uh, good yeah. man. <laughs> so that was, uh, that was a lot of fun. I got to work with a lot of brilliant people and there's uh, no shortage of passion and some of the most, you know, the coolest people that, uh, that you could ask for to me, especially being like 21 at the time. It was an awesome job. That, that is really cool. And you did that um, right b- before going to law school? That's right. So I, uh, I, I interned, and that was about a couple, I want to say maybe two, two and a half years. And then mm-hmm. I got brought on as the uh, college and lifestyle marketing rep, did that you know, again for like two years and was still finishing up my undergrad. And then at that point, kind of the, the bottom fell out of the uh, of the industry and the uh, the universal office in Troy closed and I saw like you know people I worked for people I admired like lose their jobs and I was like oh mm-hmm. you know and th- the lawyer thing had always been something I was fascinated with and, and and been in the back of my head but it kind of took that as encouragement like okay I might as well buckle down take my LSAT and mm-hmm. but always kind of keep the music aspect uh, going as well so I was wondering, in, in law schools, is there a specialty, like, quote-unquote, that you can go down this road of um, entertainment law? Do they have something like that? You know, unless you're going, I, I mean, I know some schools do, but those who are being, you know, like, I think, uh, like like a Loyola or a UCLA mm-hmm. that are, you know, in on the coasts, kind of have more of a, you know, you can go down the specialty, but, uh, I went to Wayne state law school, which was an excellent school and they did have, you know, there was entertainment law classes and, um, there was also, you know, you could take, uh, seminars and and do things for like practical experience. And, Mm -hmm. you know, they had, uh, the entertainment law class at Wayne with the professor was a Howard Hertz, which is, you know, one of the top, top, you know, entertainment lawyers in the country. So having somebody, you know, of that caliber teaching, you know, young students was a, was pretty cool so like it's not like you know you're declaring like a major per se like you're Mm -hmm. still pretty much taking fundamental courses your first year and then you kind of can uh navigate kind of towards what you think you want to do in the the next two years in the law firm that you currently work for right now is that the the only one you've worked for in your career um i would say yeah yeah i mean i after my clerkship ended um, at Sharfus, they uh, 
that place was just uh, kind of disbanding because the partners were retiring. Mm-hmm. And I was able to, fortunately enough, get, get on with, uh, with with Steve and Josh, and I've been with them ever since. And, and th- they had done um, a lot of not only entertainment litigation, but just some pretty fascinating uh, litigation uh, in general uh, with intellectual property and business cases. So it was really, it was a good fit. Okay, so it's it's not just um, having to do with uh, music. It's like IP kind of spans a bunch of different things. That's right. So, I mean, you'll deal with, you know, trademark disputes between businesses. Um, we, I, you know, I, I had a seven-year litigation that I was involved in uh, involving somebody's uh, basically pirating of another company's software program. Oh, wow. So you get to deal with some some fascinating fascinating elements and meet you know a lot of very 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 interesting people. Um, so mm-hmm. but everything from that to doing um, you know licensing and, and production deals for you know TV shows and different companies. So it's it's definitely you know runs the gamut of uh, <laughs> cool things to do for sure. Do, do you remember like the first like the, the very first case you ever worked on? Yes. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I do. Because <laughs> it, it was so it was so absurd. So so when I got hired, um, the, the managing partner and my boss and mentor, Steve Cohen, was, he, brought, he told me, you're going to work on probably the most interesting range of cases. Uh, that is one thing I can promise you. The first case he brought in was a, uh, or he, he put me on, it was a business license uh, had been suspended based on allegations uh, that this business, which was a uh, massage parlor <laughs> on the east side, had been doing some things that, uh, you know, giving uh, customers some extras that w- were against the law. And the uh, w- we were able to disprove that in the court, won the appeal, had the business license reinstated. It turned out the officer that had been doing the sting uh, wasn't being candid with the... Uh, the board when he, you know, applied to have their license revoked. So we were able to get that instated. But I mean, that's like, my, so my first case is this massage parlor appeal. So it, it just you ran the gamut from there. So again, never a dull moment. Wow. Um, now, lately, I remember the one time we spoke, you were saying that you had to travel out to California for, was it a case? Yeah. Yeah. Do you are you having to do that a lot these days? Travel back and forth between Michigan, and California. Not as much these days because so much, uh, so many things are on Zoom. Oh, okay. um, the, the courts have kind of pivoted that way, which which in a sense is you know it's it is nice and it's convenient for some things and for other things you know it it would be preferable to be in front of the court, mm-hmm. obviously, but. Prior to that, I traveled a lot. Uh, with, you know, with the software infringement case I was talking to you about, I went all over the country um, and up in Canada. I mean, I was in in Winnipeg in, in a February. I mean, just Ooh. frigid, um, just taking depositions. So if Winnipeg, and that case was actually it, it was it started in Michigan, went up on appeal. We won it on appeal. Then it got transferred to uh, Nebraska. So I I spent weeks in uh, in Omaha and actually mm-hmm. came to, to like the city quite a bit. It's a, it was a cool place, but I, one of those things I never thought you know you, you ever think you're going to be up in up in Winnipeg freezing or out in Omaha for weeks or you know probably I probably went back and forth to Omaha like 30, 40 times. Really? So, oh wow! Yeah, Omaha, home of uh, 
College World Series. And that's true. <laughs> that, that's true. College World Series, great stakes, and yeah. actually, you know, really cool record stores. Really? Uh, which which was a an added perk. And it got to the point where I, you know, where I was going out there for trial. Like I had so many suitcases, I would kind of like keep a little uh, you know, clearance in one of my pieces of luggage for records that I was bringing back. So it's cool, man. Oh, that's really cool. I, I also uh, Berkshire Hathaway is out there. That's right. That's right. Omaha, uh, Oracle of <laughs> Omaha, Mr. Yeah. Buffett. <laughs> so many things to like about Omaha. I've never been. Fr- very friendly people. It's, it's a lot like yeah. here. I might have to visit. Um, you know what's so funny is this area, the reason why I got interested in music, uh, specifically like uh, artists, like the music business, how artists make money, was there's a guy I listen to called uh, DJ Academics. He's like a hip-hop um, podcaster, blogger, uh, streamer. And I heard him talking about it one day. And I didn't realize that it seems so complicated. Just from me on, on an outside perspective, and I'm, I'm trying to look things up and trying to increase my knowledge on it. I'm just like, God, there's, there's so much here that I have, I have no idea. I, have, I don't understand. Even just something as simply as publishing, music publishing. I remember listening to an interview with, I think it was Billy Corgan from Smashing Pumpkins. Pumpkins yep. Yeah. I think it was on Joe Rogan and he talks, he, he, somebody, I think he said, somebody told him, oh, you got to get in the publishing industry. And I had no idea what that was. Um, can you, are you able to explain what publishing is? I mean, I, I can certainly take a crack at it. Yeah. It's, it's not a, uh, like, like like you said, it's it's not a straightforward answer. It's more mm-hmm. of an umbrella, of, you know, a, a couple of different facets. But mm-hmm. you know, in in short, you know, the publishers, what they're responsible for is taking your your songs. You know, you and and when you music in itself, a song is for copyright purposes. There's two components. There's the actual composition, which is you know the lyrics, the words, and then there's the recording. So these are two kind of channels, and those are the channels that the money can flow into based on those. So the publishers take these, you know, these separate, uh, these pieces, and it's it's the job of the publishers to, you know, try and um, not only make sure that, you know, if the songs are used in, uh, in a commercial or, you know, played on, you know, a uh, Spotify or you know in in a live uh, in a stadium or whatever to make sure that those performance those royalties are mm-hmm. flowing in based on the artist usage, but also to place and try and build uh, and I would say create value for those assets as well. So you'll see you know companies that you know administer um, just mountains of these uh these works and so it's their job to kind of act as the uh the not only the, the bookkeepers but also just to try and make sure that everything is uh everything's in order that the rights issues are in place and if there's you know disputes try and uh 
get a handle on that. But it's, I mean, these people wear a lot of hats. And you're, to your point about how complex and, and complicated the actual business of, of music can be, I think you're absolutely right. And I, I think that it's something that a lot of artists, I think by by their by nature, and and it, it's I always tell because my my little brother's still in band, still still playing live, and he's a phenomenal drummer. Mm. And and I've seen, and me having grown up playing in bands too, I've seen bands that you know I was friends with, and these dudes got major label deals, and then a couple of years later they're just kind of down on their luck. And a lot of it comes from just a lack of accessible information for artists and just the general kind of confusing nature of the business itself. And it's constantly evolving and the rules keep changing. Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of, uh, that's something that at least, you know, I try to be very direct and, you know, assist my clients as much as possible with not only trying to represent them to the best that I can, but empowering them with the knowledge to show, like, you know, hey, here, here's how this works. You know, I, I don't suggest you do this, or I, I, I would recommend that you hire an accountant. Or if they have, you know, they're dealing with exposure from litigation or some other uh, obligations, recommend that they don't file bankruptcy because at that point there's a very, very good chance that you're going to wipe out your intellectual property assets in the bankruptcy. And you don't want that because that's their, you know, that's a lifeline. That's a lifeline for these people. So it's, oh, yeah. um, I, again, and, and I think that historically, the lack of available knowledge about how the business actually works has been used as a, uh, as leverage uh, against artists. And that's why you hear these horror stories about people entering deals to where, you know, um, all sorts of money's missing or, hey, my record went platinum but I owe the company money? Like, mm. how does that happen? It's like, well, you didn't read your contract or you had a bad lawyer counseling you. And that's, you know, people think, you know, they want to allocate money towards these different, you know, different expenses. But I think the the best friends for a musician is going to be manager, lawyer, accountant. That's what's going to position you to be as successful as possible, but also make sure that you're getting the best deals possible because there's a lot of, there's a lot of different ways things could go. So like if I'm an artist and I have, you know, I have some success, I have a SoundCloud profile and I have a lot of views on there. A, an A&R comes up to me and wants to sign me to their record label. I would, if I was smart, I would say, hey, I would like to seek some representation to represent me in this negotiation. I would, and I would come to somebody like you and your law firm to help out, like, and look at the actual contract. That's correct. Yeah, I, I do. I, I've, I've, I do that a lot. Yeah, uh, and that's you know how I've been able to establish relationships with clients, and ultimately, you know, that's led to some really, really cool success stories. But it's you're making sure that from that ground level that you're not entering into a deal that's going to come back to to burn you. And I mean, even people like you know from look at like a, like a Taylor Swift. I mean, she's you know been in a fight with Big Machine, which is funny. When I was at Universal, that's when she was first uh, breaking as ours because Universal owned Big Machine. But there's a uh, I mean, there's a dispute with her and Big Machine about her masters. So it, it's just one of those things to where it's you know if you can find good counsel at the outset 
or you know establish some sort of relationship with with somebody who's going to look out for you and generally has your best interests uh, in mind. It's it, it's paramount. And what are some are there common things you see in a record contract amongst like all the clients that you work with? Are there like just certain stipulations that are pretty standard in a record contract? Like um, you have to, it's for like a certain amount of time. It's, you have to put out a certain amount of music in that time, like things like that. I would say that there are some ballpark uh, components, but everything's negotiable. Um, mm-hmm. I, that's how I view it. And uh, that's how I've gotten my, you know, again, it's, it's my job to get my client the most favorable deal possible with also the, the mind that if he really wants this to go forward and, you know, you want the exposure, it's, I don't want to blow up the deal, but I'm going to press as hard as I can to get the concessions that are going to make the most sense to my client, both now and down the road. So, for example, one of the things that can cause a lot of uh, contention, but people don't think about at the time, is, is royalty audits and how that process works. Because there can be a whole structure to it, and a lot of times what they'll try to do is, hey, you're only allowed to audit our books for you know, a, period, a window of time at like one week at the end of each you know, annual year, and it's, you have to give notice in, in this time, and oh, by the way, you got to pay for the audit, and that can get real expensive. Uh, and unfortunately, you know, it's nothing but love for Big Sean, but Big Sean found that out the hard mm. way. Um, yeah. and, and so that's something. That, but that that's something that can be negotiated at the outset of a deal, if you've got good counsel to where it's like, okay, you know, y- your attorney will be able to look down the road and see, hey, you know, if, if this becomes an issue, I can help sidestep these landmines by pushing back on that. And those are usually terms that at, at the time of the agreement that you can usually get the, uh, the other side to uh, come to the table on. Yeah. When, when I, I know that, that one email that I had sent you uh, about that, the um, Big Sean audited uh, the good music record label. And I heard him talk about that on uh, drink champs podcast and something that, I had never thought about because I know of other audits, you know, in regular um, business and in the world, but I never knew that that's a possibility in the music world. And essentially, is he auditing to get, he's auditing them to get back any royalties that they didn't pay him for some of the music that for his music that was played like he's he's auditing them to get back uh royalties that he's owed yes i mean yes it's just to get back royalties or any unpaid monies or or compensation um that he would have been entitled to under that agreement with them now now i haven't i don't know if that agreement's public record i don't i don't think it is um but that would be you know he wants to make sure that they're holding up their end of the bargain Mm-hmm. And the thing about audits in the music business is um, music accounting is real. It can get real slippery real quick. So that's, you know, when, when, again, when it comes to those types of provisions, 
you not only need some kind of structure to say, hey, you know, if I invoke this auditing provision, you know, the first thing is you don't want to be responsible for their attorney fees on top of yours. And a lot of times that's they'll put that in that language and people won't think twice about it. But mm-hmm. I mean, when push comes to shove and you're in that position, the last thing you want to be doing is paying the other side's attorney fees. And, you know, I, there's, you know, there's a chance that that clause might not get held up in a court of law, but that would require you to initiate litigation over the audit provision. And a lot of times, though, that's what happens when you try to have, um, when you've got somebody else basically acting as a escrow agent or holding money that's entitled to you, money can disappear. And expenses in the way that the music business has historically accounted for monies, can, uh, it can go a lot of different directions. Mm-hmm. And so that's like, you know, people will, and you'll hear these stories about like the, these young acts that get signed and they get these advances and then their their album does really well. Say so, you know, sells initial album sells two hundred fifty thousand or you know, this is using kind of the physical back in the day metrics, but yeah. like yeah. you know, sells you know, say say it goes gold. And they're like, you know, I got a gold record. Where where's my money? And like, oh well, you know, you remember that tour bus that you went on tour with? Well yeah, that was, you know, that was coming off <laughs> that was gonna be recoupable. Oh, and those lunches that, you know, the deli trays, oh yeah, that was recoupable too. And Oh, those dinners? Yeah, that counted against you as well. And they're like, what the hell? But that's something that needs to be taken into account mm-hmm. because it's not, I mean, that's, the, the record labels have it, uh, I don't want to say it, rigged, but th- there's a system and a method to where it's worked for you know a long time to, to their best interest. And that's how a lot of art artists end up in these positions to where it's like you have these fairly successful releases and no money Mm -hmm. so what does recoupable mean they you have to like pay that back so if um yeah i mean basically in short it's you know you've you your earnings based on sales are then offset against those expenses that the labels already incurred on your behalf. <laughs> and there can be a wow. lot, a lot of expenses. And you have to keep in mind too, it's not just these, you know, they talk about the tour bus, the, the deli lunches, but it goes into the marketing and the promotional expenses. And those can be massive. And it's really, really difficult if you're trying to reconcile those for like an audit purpose. Like how, how do you, how do you, uh, keep you know keep the label honest uh-huh. and 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 it's not to say that the label hasn't incurred those expenses but there's a lot of different you know holes and, and pockets that those expenses can come from and there's just uh, a, a real I, I think disconnect between how those types of things are, are are perceived and how artists are made aware of them at the you know when they're initially being signed and then when it come, when push comes to shove the rubber meets the road like dude where's my money well by the way, you know, remember all these things that we did for you? Yeah, that's got to get paid for too. Wow. <laughs> Jeez. And and, 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 I, and I say that not to make or, or, or not to vilify, you know, every record label because mm-hmm. there's, you know, gen, there's some wonderful people and some brilliant people that have come out of the music business, but 
the reason that these things become known is because it's somebody's had a very bad experience with them and, and and it's i think it's gotten better for artists now but it's not where it needs to be mm-hmm. and i mean when i say better it's because what they, where it was before that was you'd have people that you know were writing these massive songs or, or recording these songs and had nothing nothing to show for it and like you and this is a you know, detroit thing but like uh jackie wilson who was one of the just pioneers of like r&b um didn't doing it this was pre motown so i mean this was a dude that you know barry gordy everybody in detroit idolized he got linked up with uh somebody from brunswick records in chicago lost i mean this guy was making millions not only based on his his catalog but his performing everything had nothing he died you know in a, in a hospital basically like penniless Mm-hmm. Because his it had just been siphoned because he had this sideways deal to where these people just kind of took over his catalog, then weren't paying him, and then when he's trying to push back on it, they'd say, "Well, hey, don't worry about it. Here, here's the new Cadillac," and then they just kept leveraging these Cadillacs as advances, and it's just you fall deeper in the hole, and all, all the while, you know, you think that he's just out on the road, he's making music, he's not, he's not an accountant. Nobody expects him to be the accountant or the lawyer, but you think you've got this nest egg. Lo and behold, you don't have anything. So it's just uh, those types of things are tragic, mm-hmm. and that's why you know you want to see artists empowered with you know the information because and and I recognize too that you know artists you know it, it's it costs money to record an album, it costs money to be in a band, and lawyers aren't aren't free. And you know I, I try to do one of the kind of things I try to do just as a general, um, just. Uh, my moral compass is to try and help younger acts and artists with, uh, you know, discounted rates and do the best I can to mm-hmm. just kind of pay it forward. I think that's a, a good, if nothing else, it's good karma. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, I realize that that's not an option for a lot of people. So that's why getting and empowering artists with information about the mechanics of the business and how things work from a practical standpoint, I think is key. That's that's cool that you do that too. Um, in regards to the record label, I know you touched on this just now. If I'm an artist, what's a record label providing me that I couldn't just do like on my own without a record label? Okay, so. A couple things. The, the the record label has the these deep rooted connections, not only in you know in radio. The record labels you know has radio promotion guys on staff, mm-hmm. but also has connections with um other bands for purposes of you know setting getting you on a tour. They also have connections with media outlets, um, and that can be you know if it all goes right, you can you know the record label can have you you know show on you know put on a late night show or you know back when mtv actually like played music instead of reality shows that was a big you know way way to placement Mm -hmm. but the crazy thing about that was there was no that was just like a promotional tool like artists didn't make money off an mtv but the visibility drives record sales drives concert tickets so it's you know that's that's the payoff Mm -hmm. that you know but so, so I, I think that there's value 
in the the relationships and the experience of a of labels to be able to help artists navigate the uh the many facets of of the music business and and, and help find uh ways for artists to make money mm-hmm. and the record label is is the record label different than like when you said uh, you um your previous work experience at universal Universal's not necessary they're not a record label but they have record labels that are a part of it well universal actually it is a it so it is a record label but it also is this parent of this conglomerate of other labels mm-hmm. so for example um and some of the label ownerships changed a little bit but it was a, a lot of artists were under or a lot of labels were under this universal umbrella and that being island def jam Interscope, um, you know, Motown. Um, I think Motown shifted over to Capital now, but you, so you had all these labels oh. under the umbrellas of these conglomerates. And then, and then within that whole structure, they have distribution arms. So that's what would help, you know, the, you've got the, the labels, which are traditionally New York and California. Mm-hmm. And then, then you've got these distribution arms for the labels that are, you know, in the, the reason they were out in Troy was because in you know nineties and two thousands, um, you had Borders, Barnes and Nobles, and Borders was one of the the biggest retailers of music in, in the country. Um, so it's getting the products, getting the you know the CDs, the albums, the tapes, um, and dealing with the the buyer representatives from those bookstores, or you know from from a Borders, from a Walmart, from from a Best Buy, and <clears throat> the way that the the distribution companies kind of worked in tandem with the the actual labels themselves is you know one of the when 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 billboard metrics i think uh world to to say roughly mattered a little bit more you know Mm -hmm. when you talk about first weeks you know people going platinum people selling 500,000 copies one of the ways to achieve those was to make sure that your initial orders of your your products were as high as possible so how do you do that? The, the, the way you do that is you have a strong distribution team that has a good relationship with retail and that can spark interest at retail by letting retail see the act. So one of the beneficiaries of that when I was at Universal was Taylor Swift. Taylor Swift came and performed in the offices in Troy. And that helped, I mean, that helped drive her orders up at, you know, the Borders, the Barnes and Nobles, all those outlets. Uh-huh. And, uh, I think it was a real um, benefit for her. Other people that, you know, 50 Cent, uh, Kanye, uh, though they would come by because 50 Cent's one of the... I, I mean, love it, 50 Cent. I do too. <laughs> I, I, the guy is brilliant and he is one. He's yeah. somebody that's he understands th- the business. Mm-hmm. Um, and he, I mean, he's charming. He knows how to, to schmooze and he, that's, he was able to really leverage that because he knows exactly, he's, you know, He's gonna do what he needs to do, to, to to make sure that these retail buyers are gonna say, oh yeah, let's let's you know that order we had for you know we were gonna put two hundred fifty thousand and let's knock that to three, let's knock that to three fifty, and that matters. Yeah. So that that's how the the distribution interplays with the label. I um, I want to come back to the distribution, but uh, one thing. 
is it, I don't know if this is fair to say, but it, it just seems like there's, there's so many record labels out there. I remember at a point, it seems like once a rapper got some somewhat prominent, they start their own label. Like Lil Wayne had Young Money, Kanye has Good Music, Rick Ross, Maybach Music Group, Jay-Z, Rockefeller, uh, 50 Cent, G-Unit. It, it just seems like there's so many labels out there, but essentially they are, are these artists in the mind, if I'm like in the mind of like Jay-Z or 50 Cent, am I saying to myself, okay, you know, I was signed to Interscope in the case of 50 Cent. Uh, Interscope was my uh, record label plus Shady Records and all that. But now I want to take control of my own promotion, so I'm going to start my own record label to do that. Is is that kind of why these artists start their own record labels? Because for like a little more control over that? Well, I I, I think that's part of it, but, but I, I think the full amount of act you know actual autonomy that they may have in some of these labels is limited because these you know these labels good music you know or Mm g-unit like you mentioned under interscope Mm -hmm. they're all there's a parent that they're through and they might run through that for distribution they might run through that for other aspects because you know there's there's things that a label needs to have done legal accounting things like that marketing promotions mm-hmm. that this you know these little uh these l- labels that they create might not be uh c- have the capacity to perform so at at that point you structure some sort of venture within the uh the actual the major label and allocate responsibilities uh to do that one thing i think that is um useful and and is enticing for an artist to want to have their own uh, boutique label say is they can then play a and r and bring on artists that they sign to that label and then that label is connected with the major label Mm -hmm. and then say that artist breaks then you know whoever brought them to the table is getting a piece of the action Mm, okay yeah that okay yeah that makes sense because i could see that i mean that happened with um to use the 50 cent example like eminem i was just gonna say that eminem yeah. eminem and dre yeah could and dre is all the way up the, the food chain because right. dre's got direct deals with jimmy iovine mm-hmm. from interscope mm-hmm. dre brings eminem onto the table dre's getting a piece of that eminem brings 50 on M's getting a piece of it. Dre's getting a piece of it. So it, it's all, you know, and, and that's, again, I think that's what speaks to Dre's brilliance as a businessman and, and a musician, mm-hmm. but being able to have the foresight to enter into these, these ventures, um, to position himself, to really, uh, reap the rewards of, of, you know, successes because I mean, Dre, look at it historically, like Dre was, Dre saw how things could go wrong. And Ice Cube because they were their association with NWA, mm-hmm. and when everybody got burned by Jerry Heller, except Easy E, Easy E ultimately got burned by Jerry Heller. Dre found that you know he found out the hard way what what can happen. He's like, I'm not going to let this happen again. Mm-hmm. And so Dre, by having you know that life experience and by seeing how things can how you can get burned, 
wanted to ensure that that wasn't going to happen to him again. And I think that's, you know, sometimes it's learning, making those mistakes, you know, falling off the bike and making sure that you get back up on the horse and you don't let those same mistakes happen again. I think that's a prime example of it. And when you say that they're getting, like in our example that we're using, like with 50 Cent, Eminem, Dr. Dre, are they, they're getting like a piece of uh, the royalties off of when 50 Cent's music gets played, but only for the music that 50 Cent has under the the record label at that time. So every time his music gets played in a club or even at like, I don't know, a concert, they're, they're getting some part of that uh, revenue generated. You know, it's, it's, it, these, the deals aren't uh, one size fits all and not having not seen those, you know, exact agreements. I don't want to speculate, but I, I would, to answer the question, I would say that there is a, there's a good probability that, not only from you know sales, but depending on the nature of the deal, um, you know, the performance royalties and and different things like that. That maybe there's a piece that's not all going to Fifty Cent, and you look, but you look at how what Fifty Cent's done for himself as a brand, the vitamin water deal, brilliant. Yeah. I mean, he he's just yeah. he's been able to take what he had and just parlay it. Uh, to, to, to oh, yeah. just just such a writing books like I mean he like yeah I, I love I read his one of his books. I did yeah. that that <laughs> you know the fiftieth law and, yeah. and he because I, I love uh, Robert Greene's the Forty Eight Laws of Power and it, apparently Fifty Cent did too and I, I think he did a nice job doing that so he he knows how to he knows how to navigate he's a very very shrewd and, and smart businessman but I think a lot of that is I think his own just just mind. And mm-hmm. his being, just being a, a sharp guy, but I'm sure that some of that tutelage also comes from Dre. Mm-hmm. Eminem, same thing. Yeah. You know, you look at the the how shady you know it, it expanded when it was really at its peak. You had the clothing brand. I remember you, that. Yeah. yeah, and you had those uh, all sorts of you know cross promotions and, and, and different things, and they had they had the Eight Mile movie, and yeah. just really being able to do that. So I mean, that and that's you know. That was you know, he had major label backing to do that, but you know t- to give you a, a local example of somebody who's done it really without major label backing is mm-hmm. you know and people clown on on the group, but in Saint Cloud Posse, that is a, a juggernaut as far as they control their their licensing, their merchandise sells. I, I think their offices are still in Farmington. Oh, that's they, cool. They sell a massive amount of merchandise, and then you've got your music. Mm-hmm. You know, the recorded music, there's a huge market for that. And then they have these touring festivals, um, that gathering of the juggalos. And so they have this, they've created this this uh this whole universe to where you've got all sorts of money going in and out, and you've had I mean, they were affiliated at one time with uh with a major record label. I want to say it was DreamWorks, because it was owned by Disney and they got in a lot of trouble and eventually ended up leaving there. <laughs> but uh but they, they didn't need the uh the major label backing to really flourish. And at, at, then at that point, because they built all this up independently, they're keeping the lion's share of those monies. So those, those guys are, you know, well, well set. Yeah. <laughs> I, I do love the examples. Like you just mentioned ICP or 50 cent that have 
like 50 cents surpassed his music kind of it, he i know he hasn't made he hasn't had an album come out in a while uh but he's doing so much now i mean he's got a tv show now too yep um and it's almost like if i was an artist i would be thinking about the the longevity aspect i guess it's like in you can't play football forever so it's at some point you're going to have to deal with the career or with what you do outside of football for if you're like a professional football player and maybe it, it kind of sounds like it's the same mentality in the music business as well like at some point there's you got to start thinking about other things you know not everybody's going to be a fan of there's going to be a point where your music just maybe doesn't hit as hard as it once did but i mean i don't know jay-z i think this last jay-z album was still great but still i mean jay-z does a ton of stuff outside of music as well um i remember i was listening to an interview with john cena who's a wwe wrestler and actor he said that Vince McMahon owns the rights to his name, John Cena. This was an interview on Howard Stern, and Howard Stern says, are you okay with that? With Vince McMahon owning the rights to your name? And John says, yeah, 100%. Because without the WWE, I wouldn't be in movies today. And I wouldn't be in the state that I'm in right now. And the financial freedom that I have if I wasn't in the WWE and I didn't have like that opportunity. So he said, yeah, I'm okay with it. And with what we were talking about earlier, it kind of seems that way with like a record label, like sure. Sure. On one hand you are giving up like uh, some sort of control and the royalties to the record label, but you know, if they could also blow you up and you could have an outstanding career from that relationship with the record label. I, I don't know what you think about all that said. Um, but yeah. No, I, I, yeah. Th- I think that's a, that's a valid point. And, and that's kind of, that's the risk reward mm-hmm. because there, there are some acts that are really, really well suited for, you know, handling and, you know, development by record labels. The problem, at least that I saw, and I think that's that's still lacking in in the the record industry itself, is that there's there's not the emphasis on artist development that there you know you saw in decades prior in, mm. in the seventies when they you know would allow acts to you know have these you know hey if your first album flops so what. You know, we're, we're going to keep, keep you cooking. We're going to put you with a different producer and it's going to hit. Mm. And I mean, you look at like, uh, like an act like ACDC. Um, that was something that was kind of, you know, eh, your first couple albums do okay. But then, you know, then your lead singer dies and it looks like it's the end of the road. But then they put you with a different producer, find a new lead singer. And boom, you got Back in Black, which one of the top selling, you know, hard rock albums ever. Yeah. Um, so... It's uh, it's something that I, I think is can be very beneficial to the right musician. Uh, to your point about 
John Cena and and the branding aspect, I, I think that's a that's an important consideration that I think all acts need to be cognizant of is that your your band is a brand, and how you allow that brand to be portrayed, or what affiliations that you make or go into you know business with as that brand has you know impact in the future good and bad um and that's something that you know because certainly like you know you've got if you're an act that just you're 20 years old you're not going to probably feel the same same way uh or have the same tastes that you do if you're still in the band at 35 so being able to have good good handling and make sure that you're in the right types of deals uh, to where you're not looking back with, with dread on some, you know, some corny, you know, awful, uh, you know, decisions or, you know, promotional campaigns that you got into mm-hmm. years earlier is good. Um, I, I think with you, with your point about John Cena, I, I, I think, uh, you know, that it's, that is that speaks to well first it speaks to just Vince McMahon's kind of the the reason why he's been so sec- successful is because he was able to take you know a, an industry that was basically split into territories consolidate it and then leverage that and you know have all this this just massive stable of of you know um, of wrestlers. Under with these images that he was able to successfully market and capitalize off of, mm-hmm. and so because of the you know the resources that he put behind it, it you know he makes the argument that oh well it's you know I built this you know there's no John Cena there's no Triple H there's no uh, <laughs> there's no Stone Cold without me, mm-hmm. which I mean I, I I think you know Cena is perhaps maybe more receptive to that than other people might be because you know if you look at what happened with razor ramon scott hall you know when he defects to uh wcw but then makes a killing say diesel kevin nash uh and kevin but kevin and you you look at the way this goes back to like branding Mm -hmm. kevin nash is still being able to leverage just his own you know his brand through his name in the cannabis business so there's all sorts of opportunities if you can make sure that you know the way that your image is portrayed and the relationships that you put out there with that image are you know not going to come back to cause you heartburn and an example of somebody who's fiercely protective about her brand but who does a phenomenal job is Taylor Swift mm-hmm. i mean that's why she clapped back so hard on ticketmaster mm. which i i think was a totally i mean long overdue and it's not the you know this isn't the first time people have been upset with Ticketmaster, but I mean, I, sh- I think she does a good job in w- what she um, want, you know, she portrays to her clients, or not not her clients, but but her fans. I, I think she, she has this connection, this relationship with them, and it's, it's, it's genuine. Mm-hmm. And I think when things interfere with that, these outside forces, she rightfully gets upset. And, you know, that's why you... She's not. You're not going to see her doing certain commercials for certain companies because it's objectionable to her. You know her her brand mm-hmm. and her. You know how she wants to have herself presented. And I think she's done a 
phenomenal job leveraging that. Speaking of that, I, I do want to bring that up because um, I just saw for this new uh, Drake tour that's coming up with uh, 21 Savage, they are or Ticketmaster's in hot water again with this concert, and I think there's a lawsuit tied to um, them offering tickets for the, the Drake's tour. Um, so I, I do want to ask you about that. Uh, really quick before, going back to, you had mentioned distribution, and that was another thing when I was looking stuff up. Um, I did not... I didn't know what this meant, and I had always just kind of thought that, oh, the the, the label does everything. They're they're the one stop shop. But the, there's these two different enti- like, or I guess I should ask you this: the the label. There's a difference between between a record label and a distribution, or are they can they sometimes be one in the same thing? Generally, there's going to be a distribution arm, which is going to be a separate entity that is a lot of times, you know, with the majors affiliated with the with that label. Or in other cases, um, if you've got, you know, a, a bunch of indie labels, they're going to be distributed through uh, a, a third party entity. So there's no overlap in ownership. But yeah, I mean, the, the distribution and, you know, traditionally it was, you think of, like I had mentioned, you know, getting the physical products yeah. to retail. Um, but now it's pivoted to where a lot of the major labels have interests in these digital distributors that are responsible for placing artists on the streaming mediums. Um, and so, you know, that's, it remains to be seen how much consolidation in that area is going to be too much because Mm -hmm. I'm just personally, I'm a proponent of, I like competition. I don't like uh, these uh, behemoths having, you know, giving people one or two sources to be able to do something, and that's it. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, and but the major labels hate competition, or and they they they, they are uh, historically reluctant to change, and that's why when everything, you know, went digital, um, and then you had. Apple through iTunes selling, you know, single songs instead of albums, they went nuts mm-hmm. because it totally just threw their business model on its head. Um, and you know, or with the with the, the you know the whole Napster and you know, Kazaa and all that, the file sharing thing. And, and it wasn't this you know, I, I think they made it out to be this bigger boogeyman than it was for you know using the axe as the. The, the people they want, they put out in the front, like, oh, these, you know, you're really hurting these people. And, but at the end of the day, the, I mean, <clears throat> like the example I, I had given about, hey, you, you go gold and you end up owing the company money. How is that possible? Well, that's exactly because your deal is structured like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, so it wasn't like, uh, I, I think for the acts itself, I mean, I know bigger artists, you know, Metallica pouted, but, you know, but. Metallica's doing just fine, uh, and they're still they're still killing it. I mean, they got you know t- two dates coming up at Ford Field. Their licensing is, oh, is yeah. huge, um, so I mean they're you know it's just being able to navigate that change. But the the digitization totally threw the label infrastructure on its head, and they had a real problem not being able to pivot 
and follow the technology. And so, the, and that, you know, leads to you've got the clash between the labels and, and the tech companies, but also just a, a general reluctance of a label to change. Because that is one thing, you know, from my experience working in the industry is that it was very, there's a lot of red tape. And in a, in a creative industry, especially when you're structuring promotions, when you're doing these campaigns, I mean, I, you know, because Michigan was one of the first schools that Facebook debuted, I was doing all sorts of stuff on Facebook. And I had gotten, I, not in trouble, but I, I had you know, gotten a little bit of a slap on the wrist from somebody saying, hey, you got to run it, you know, through me. And me being, a, you know, just kind of being younger, being a little more arrogant, said, okay. I went straight to the, the person at the label, not the distribution. So do you like my idea? She loved it. But it was just, you know, and then I got to say, hey, you just make sure you go through me. Don't go to the top of the chain anymore. So it's just those types of things that are, you know, slow things down. And it, that reluctance to embrace these, these technologies, which now they have. Mm-hmm. And it's obviously been to their benefit massively. But being able to be, uh, you know, just on, you know, position your business to be able to shift with the changes in technology and with the consumer demand to be able to, you know, so you're not force feeding people and being able to be flexible enough to where you can adapt and still be profitable. Mm-hmm. And when distributing, especially now in this digital world, are, are these distribution arms the ones who make the choices for, like, I, I, I use Spotify, um, the Spotify has curated playlists of, I'm trying to think of some, I know in the rap category, there's, uh, <laughs> there's like turned up, there's a uh, rap caviar. Yep. Uh, are these distribution arms the ones that lobby to put these, uh, s- singles onto those playlists or are they simply just, Hey, Spotify, here's a new album from our artist, upload it? That's a really good question. And to be honest, I don't know if it's directly from those distribution arms, because, you know, like see, you know, Sony has a big stake in one of the distributors, Universal has stake in others. Um, but I would, I think it's a fair uh, guess that somebody either at the label or the label via its ownership in the distribution arm is position helping their artists get positioned and i again that i think that's another way that labels can help acts Mm -hmm. but then it comes down to hey i've got this you know deal with with the label and i'm making fractions of pennies for you know these things that are gonna you know i'm am i gonna be able to see any money at the end of the day but then the the flip of that is well the label positions me i get on this playlist i get some visibility through you know a performance or a booking at you know some you know uh, some outlet uh-huh. and then I'm able to parlay that and now I'm on you know on this massive tour and I've got money coming in so it's a you know it's a balance and I, I had heard again this was something I heard DJ academics talk about I've kind of noticed this too it, it just seems like albums I used to love going to like Best Buy or Target and buying like a physical CD and I still have a lot uh, back home at my parents, but now albums feel different. 
and I, academics was talking about how now it's all about these playlists. And I guess we'll, we'll, we should get into streaming and how the, how these artists are making money off of streaming because it, at least from what I saw, it's very hard to make money off of just somebody, oh, I'm just going to click on this song on Spotify and, oh, you, okay, yeah, you get a dollar for this song. But it's not a, it's not even a dollar. It's, no, it's cents. Yeah, it's for like <laughs> fractions of pennies. I yeah. mean, it's, it's, it's not. And so the, to answer your question, how are you going to make money off streaming directly? You're not. Mm-hmm. You're going to make the money off of the touring, off of your merchandise, off of other um, ventures using that that streaming as a plat as a you know basically a platform to drive interest in people coming to your shows, people buying your merchandise, people buying physical products. But I mean the streaming itself, no. And and what's crazy is I, I just read this recently because people are you know everybody's like uh, christening TikTok as the uh, the next you know big you know source of uh, you know uh, pot pot of gold for these musicians. Mm. Turns out, and TikTok. I mean, people think that the fractions of pennies Spotify is, you know, that, that they pay. And, and I, to be fair, Spotify is, and they're they're working on improving those types of uh, compensation splits. But uh, TikTok is, I mean, but they pay even less, like my significantly less um, for artists, and, and because they don't view they view their their platform as it's it's video sharing the mm-hmm. music is totally secondary so it's not they just they don't care um and so you you had there was a story about somebody who had a uh a, a song that was basically uploaded to i want to say like fi- hundred thousand different videos and then within those hundred thousand videos there was like 2.1 billion views the dude got a five thousand dollar check Wow. And you think for that much visibility, there's got to be more to that. Mm-hmm. So we'll see. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but that it, I think that just underscores the fact that you know there's there's other ways for musicians to make money, and you have to sometimes think outside the box about how you do that. But I mean, the meat and potatoes has always been touring merchandise. That's how you're gonna you know and selling your you know your albums, your vinyl at shows. And that's, you know, that's never going to change. And is the reason why it's so hard for (laughs) artists to make money off these streams because it's not just like, oh, click on song, you get paid. It's in the totality, at least from what I've seen, (laughs) and correct me if I'm wrong on this, the totality of streams your percentage of that totality is what you get paid. So Drake, or actually a better example, maybe Bad Bunny, if you've heard of Bad Bunny before. um, I heard that he was the most streamed artist now, surpassing Drake. So out of all the streams on Spotify, out of the 100% pie, half of that is Bad Bunny. So Bad Bunny is going to get paid based on his percentage of the pie versus, oh, Bad Bunny has um, like a million plays. And I heard somebody on Vice say that it's never been 
I forget the exact quote. It's never been easier to make a little money, but it's become way harder to make a lot of money. And I, I thought that kind of like, just for my research too, it kind of That's like true. sums it up pretty nicely. That's <laughs> yeah. true. That's yeah. absolutely true. And I, I, you know, I, I think that this is something that, and, and there's gonna, there's gonna be a, a renegotiation soon with these, you know, with, with Spotify and these labels. And unfortunately, I, I think it's going to come down to the consumer uh, having to bear, bear the brunt of it because I think the artists are going to get paid more. But mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's not going to be a, a substantial shift. It's going to be more. But the 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 source for those additional monies isn't going to be the label giving up anymore. It's going to be them hiking the subscription price up, and uh, consumers are going to pay it. Yeah. And I mean, you know, I don't, I don't know what I, I I've had. <clears throat> I mean, I, when when Spotify first debuted, like overseas, I I had a, I was able to get access to an account to have it before it even like launched in the U.S. So I, I've followed this company. I think it's fascinating, but I I, I do think that, you know, that there's a lot of, you know, having to structure a deal with the the major labels at that time and been able to do it like it and bring these massive catalogs onto a platform. I mean, it's fascinating mm-hmm. and it's not only it, it, to have access to that much music. I mean, I, I think there's a, just a common people, you know, a, a lot of people undervalue music just from a public uh, perception because we're used to it now more as a uh, utility than a product you look at Spotify, you know, people just expect music to play just like, you know, you go to a public drinking fountain and get water. But yeah. there is, people don't recognize and respect the, the actual amount of work and resources that go into that and the fact that people's livelihoods ride on that. And I think there's that same misconception now with a lot of, you know, with a lot of artists uh, just in general. So I think there needs to be a, a spike in public consciousness about we, you know, how we value music. Um, and w- one encouraging sign I have seen, though, is this really, really massive increase in uh, physical sales via vinyl. Um, I, that's been a huge boom um, uh, to the point where the pressing plants are backed up. I mean, it's, you, you're, you know, you're an indie band, you want to cut a 7-inch, you might have to wait a couple months because... Archer and Third Man are backed up with all sorts of orders from the major labels. And, wow. you know, good for them. Like, yeah, I, It's cool that Detroit has those things and it's, you want those places to, to be around. Mm-hmm. But it's just crazy how much, how that's shifted. Um, so I, I think we're moving in the right direction. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, there's always, uh, there's room for improvement. I, have you actually heard of this one? I have it pulled up here. It's... Uh, how do I concurrent resolution? It's a bill that uh, Rashida Tlaib of Michigan proposed expressing the sense of Congress that is the duty of the federal government to establish a new royalty program to provide income to featured and non-featured performing artists whose music or audio contest is listened to on services like Spotify. And it's like resolution number 102 that was proposed just last year, um, August. Have you heard anything about this? No. Is is that the one that also that uh, had to do with terrestrial radio as well, and, and like setting, like actually, like paying royalties for terrestrial radio plays? Or that could be different. 
So maybe I'm not uh, totally familiar with that. This one, from what I've read, and this is just like a little summary of it, it it didn't, It just in the summary, it doesn't mention anything about radio, just um, establish a new royalty program that there's like, I guess, three provisions provides musicians whose recorded work is listened to on streaming music services, reasonable re- remuneration, um, ensure streaming music services compensate mu- musicians at fair rates, uh, avoids falling behind in investing in musicians within the United States compared to other countries, such and such. Um, it sounds like sounds like she's looking after <laughs> musicians. I I don't I don't know the full details of the bill, but um, like to what you were saying, it, it step in the right direction, maybe. I I I think uh, her her heart and her focus are in the right place. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know how if how uh, well this would f- do it in practice though, because you've got these vigorously negotiated deals between these major labels and these owners of the content, you know, the, these, the publishing companies and everything else. And then you've got, and then the streaming services. So you've already got a contentious, eh, you've got different, differing viewpoints and differing interests, obviously. Then you start getting, you know, government, uh, interference in that, and you know, it could. You don't want it to to create a situation to where then you end up a bunch of the labels or you know owners of these catalogs saying, "Well, screw you, I'm not going to do that." <laughs> and then the, the 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 people that love music lose out because these catalogs are no longer featured on on a Spotify, or they they go exclusive with another provider, or. You know, you have these labels that have the interest in these digital distributors, and then they create all these new things that are exclusively for them. And at the end of that, then the consumers lose out. So, again, I I think her her heart in it's it's a it's a great idea, but in practice, we're going to have to see how it how it works out because there is already tension. I know that there's movement to try and push that along to where Mm -hmm. it needs to be. Do you think? Could it ever get to a point where you have services right now like Patreon where you can go and donate to – I see it a lot with certain podcasters that I listen to. Hey, come donate to my Patreon, and you get exclusive content if you donate to my Patreon. You know, And I just use YouTube, Spotify, Apple for just like the free content everybody has access to. Could – could there get to a point then where you have like a musical act who does something like that digitally? Hey, if you want this exclusive album, donate to my Patreon, else you can't get it anywhere else. Like, could it get to that point? 100%. Oh, I, yeah. I, I think like, and you'll see like, even like uh, in the, the kind of the, the punk uh, indie scene, they're very good at, leveraging those types of things already and you know even for bigger acts you look at like you know if you go somebody's artist page on spotify and at the bottom of it you'll see links to buy merch buy buy t-shirts and and i think the next logical progression of that is saying hey you know um donate to 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 my my 
my Patreon for for band and we'll give you um, you know pre-sale tickets uh, the opportunity to get those or you know you'll get this signed uh, white vinyl that there's only 500 copies and oh, that's okay. something that's you know historically like the the, the punk scene's been good about that uh, just throughout for many 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 years but I think that that's going to come back to you know you want to be able to establish that special bond with your fans and your people are willing to pay for that and that's something that you know gets forgotten about and that's a huge huge uh there's a lot of upside in that because people want that that personalized they want to feel like they have that connection with the act and there's no better way to do that than oh send me you know pre-order our our album for 25 bucks you'll get a signed uh signed copy of it Mm -hmm. i mean you figure you're already going to pay 18 or 20 at the store hell five dollars for the actual sign by the band count me in yeah yeah so it's those types of those add-ons those incentives uh that i think are going to be you're absolutely right those are going to be huge Mm -hmm. that would uh, yeah that would be really super beneficial really cool and i i do like it when i know about an artist or a band before anybody else does or like we have our own little cult following of somebody it makes me feel cool to, to know somebody absolutely yeah. and, no and i feel you 100 percent, 100 percent. and it's not even like like a superiority or like i'm, I'm whole, you know cooler cooler than thou it's just like i love this music and and i'm, I'm on top of it like and it's, it feels good to be like yo check these guys out yo, you know ch- check this out like yeah you'll dig this just to be able to kind of curate uh music for other people mm-hmm. i remember one time when i was in new york city and there was people out out and about on the streets that were they were handing out their mixtapes like these little CDs and I oh sweet I take one and I I thought that was really cool I I don't know I don't remember their names actually but um, no that was super cool that they would do that and just get their name out there yeah um, yeah and th- those see I mean I I don't I don't know how how much uh, but I mean you're you know. A couple of years ago, you go down to uh, Electronic Music Festival to Movement, and there are people handing out stuff, you know, all over the, all over the place, which is you know a cool way to at least you know drive interest, get somebody to put it in your car. Yeah, and I still love yeah. the story. Although I found out what it wasn't true about the the dude who was giving out his mixtapes at McDonald's. I found out that wasn't true, and I was I was devastated. But that was the funniest <laughs> thing. And you come to you think about it, though, it's like it's it's pretty smart. Like yeah. you just hey, get your music out there. You're, you know, it's easy to burn CDs; they're cheap nowadays. Get mm-hmm. it out there. But I guess it depends on the content of the uh, the mixtape. But that's hey, if if, if that, <laughs> that's a good add-on for a happy meal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I to be I don't find myself at McDonald's too often. <sighs> Wait till Nowadays. you have kids. Oh uh, yeah, <laughs> that's me true. neither. Until I had kids. <laughs> Very true. Yeah. Um, going back to something you mentioned earlier a few times with Taylor Swift and Ticketmaster, they had. I didn't realize how big of a deal this was until I saw on C-SPAN they had a congressional hearing on this. Uh, I don't know. I just, I never knew that it got this big or like this bad. Um, and like I said, I actually, I have the article here, the headline of it. Um, Ticketmaster faces class action lawsuit over Drake ticket prices. Uh, there's Montreal based firm 
claims that the ticketing behemoth intentionally misleads consumers for its own financial gain. Um, I won't read the whole article, but it basically says they were price, I think it's called price gouging, where they had somebody, one of the plaintiffs, bought a ticket for almost 800 bucks, and the next day they added another day at that same venue, and the ticket ended up being uh, $350 less for people who purchased it for the second day at the venue, which, yeah, I would be upset if I bought the ticket for almost damn near $800, and now it's half that price. Um, is, is that what they're saying happened with Taylor Swift and Ticketmaster, like a similar situation? Well, from what from what I understand, and the the real the first rub with the Ticketmaster and Taylor Swift beef was because when the tickets for her tour were released, Ticketmaster servers couldn't handle the demand. Like the server actually. They've been and and I've watched the the Senate the evidentiary hearing and I've heard the both sides of the story. It's unclear exact the, the Ticketmaster saying it was these bots and these spammers. I don't know because Ticketmaster's system is very very robust and it's that's one of those things that helps Ticketmaster and has allowed Ticketmaster to be so dominant because they have this system that's been tested and vetted through decades and is built to handle that demand. Um, and so for somebody to come into the business and try and you know build that from the ground up is going to be practically impossible. So I, I don't know what really happened, but it resulted in a situation where these people were, you know, in queues to buy these tickets and they had the, you know, credentials to do it and they were trying to push this through and Ticketmaster just couldn't facilitate these people getting the tickets and it was you know then you look at what ticket what the the fees they tacked on and just everything just uh got put out there and it all got aired out which is good like and this isn't the first time ticketmaster has been well now it's ticketmaster live nation Mm -hmm. that these entities have been you know called to the table to explain themselves i mean these companies have a history of anti-competitive practices they now have the ability because you've got the biggest promoter in Live Nation with the biggest, you know, ticketing provider in Ticketmaster, you've got a situation to where they can use that leverage to put venues in a situation to where, hey, you know, you better book my, these other Live Nation acts or I'm not going to have you book, you know, you're not going to get a Metallica or you're not going to get a Taylor Swift or, or you know, these big stars that these, you know, that a live nation represents. And so you've got two companies that have a, a history of anti-competitive, anti-consumer practices now together. And it's just, I'm, I'm happy it's being brought to the, uh, to the forefront, but I mean, it's, it's long overdue. Mm -hmm. And the only time that, you know, when actually when live nation got into before they were together, the time that Live Nation was actually competing directly with Ticketmaster for ticketing, things got better. Prices went down. Ticketmaster was losing market share because Live Nation was gaining it. And then, 2009, they announced the intent that, oh, we want to merge. It's like, really? 
and and that they had found that you know this was going to create a monopoly or you know it, it was it was enough to really trigger the scrutiny from the antitrust regulators that it was going to cause problems for competition in the ticket marketing ticket market for primary services the primary ticketing market excuse me but instead of litigating and saying hey we don't want this merger to go forward the antitrust division at the time allowed this uh, basically consent decree they said okay well you can merge but here's some rules the the rules were didn't have as much teeth as they should have and i when, when i was in law school I, the my uh, the summer of my second year I spent time in Washington D.C. and actually like wrote a uh, wrote a white paper for the uh, American Antitrust Institute on this about the Ticketmaster merger, and gave people some kind of, you know indicia that they could look for down the road and see whether or not the consent decree that they structured was actually working in practice. Because the idea was, okay, if we can uh, give a, a new entrance to the to the market or established people, companies like, like an AEG that have venues, we can give them the, the ability to kind of prop themselves up. Maybe they'll become and create enough competition to where the downside from the Ticketmaster Live Nation combination will be offset. In my opinion, and based on what I knew then and know now, that hasn't happened at all. And one of the things that, that I, uh, that's you know, identified in the white paper is, you know, look at how many venues are renewing with Ticketmaster um, that, that Ticketmaster is continuing to keep uh, as their, and service as their exclusive ticketing provider. And if, it's, if you see a, a downslope, then okay, maybe, you know, you see AEG and them come in and take that market share, good, maybe this is working. But it's been pretty much anything but. I mean, Ticketmaster is as powerful as ever. And now they've got, you know, they've got their partner in Live Nation that has this massive power with the acts themselves. So you just have, you have this behemoth. And I think the public scrutiny and, and this attention that Ticketmaster and Live Nation has gotten is good, but it's, it's, it's long overdue. And that merger should have never happened in the first place. I didn't realize that. So at one point, Live Nation... Live Nation was providing the same service that Ticketmaster was. Yes, this it was. They, they were doing basically. They were competing directly in, in that primary market with with Ticketmaster. So if if like a place, you know, down here in Detroit, Ford Field or Little Caesars Arena, they have even for like a basic just Red Wings game, Pistons game, Lions game, they instead of the venue themselves providing the tickets, they use a, somebody like a ticket master to, okay, hey, we're going to host the event, but we need you to produce the tickets for patrons to come in here. Is that kind of how yeah, that works? Yeah, no, that's absolutely correct. And, and it's it's not only just, you know, getting the, the, the tickets, but it, but it's making sure that everybody, you know, you've got to make sure that the, the the seating and the capacity metrics are taken into account. You've got to make sure that the revenues generated from the ticket sales are accounted for and reconciled and, and, and audited. 
um, after the fact. And, and that's something Ticketmaster is very good at. And that's, you know, why, after, you know, after years of building this, this, uh, this system that Ticketmaster has, is they're phenomenal at it. Mm-hmm. But that's also why it's so difficult and so uh, unrealistic to expect a venue to put their operation at risk with a ticket provider that doesn't have the same sophistication and experience and success that a Ticketmaster's had. Mm. So if you don't have an incentive to switch ticketing providers, you can't expect competition to decrease in the market. Mm-hmm. So therefore, Ticketmaster stays on top. And that's, you know, and it, and it makes sense from a business standpoint because the venues don't want to put their their livelihood in the hands of a unexperienced uh, you know inexperienced entity mm-hmm. so it's uh it, it's rocking a hard place did you see this I, I i don't remember if i read this correctly as far as the taylor swift situation but ticketmaster i think oversold tickets in some situations so there wasn't there's not enough seats but they still sold tickets for some of these concerts and it's like well that doesn't make sense where are these people you have too many people in here i don't know if that was for taylor swift or something else i I can't remember um have you heard of like situations like that yeah yeah well and and it's something that that happens and then when called to task about it Ticketmaster says one thing, the venue says another thing, the artists say another thing. Everybody's pointing their fingers at the at the other. I mean, irrespective of the root cause of it, because somebody's, you know, Ticketmaster saying, "Oh, it's the scalpers, it's the it's the artists." Anyway, who cares? The point of the the point is that consumers are the ones getting hurt, and these are fans that are spending hard earned money and lots of it, yeah, lots of it to go and see these acts they love because that connection's there because they, that those artists have built that brand to drive that those ticket sales and to have it botched and that's why Taylor Swift is so pissed rightfully so yeah but at the same time I'm not going to th- and you know don't think that Taylor Swift is you know this uh charitable angel and all this I'm sure Taylor Swift's getting a handsome payment from from these sales and th- there is you know some control that the artists have over you know, how, how things are going to break out when, you know, the pot of money is collected. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but yeah, I mean, those types of, uh, you know, shifty things are, it's not the first time. <laughs> and how, what is this relationship now? How does this exactly work? So you have the venue, venue, Ticketmaster Live Nation, and then the artist, and like in our situation, Taylor Swift. How is Taylor Swift making, I guess, how is everybody making money? So that, <laughs> like the venue hosting it, do they go out and say, okay, it's 2023, we got to, you know, we have the Red Wings and the Pistons for such and such months, but for the rest of the year, we got to fill it with other events. So is the venue, I guess that's first question, does the venue go out and say, hey, Taylor, hey, Drake, we want to host you here. We're going to, I don't pay you this much, and then you handle, hopefully you can generate the sales to 
make money on your end? Like, how does that exactly work? So, I mean, um, it, it's something that's dependent on the the venue and the market itself, uh, because you know the the Hollywood Bowl or Red Rocks would necessarily have different types of drivers than, say, you know, Ford Field or St. Andrews Hall. Mm-hmm. But the I guess from a top level, these so the venues contract with you know a ticket master to do their, their their ticket servicing but as far as the actual uh the bookings they would contract with a you know with with a live nation uh and then the live na- live nation's going to you know they're going to figure out the actual structure of how these deals are going to be done oh, okay. and they're going to know that in live nation you know they're going to get these marquee acts um generally Generally, and, and that's why, you know, and occasionally, you know, you look at like how Metallica added another date to uh, the Ford Field. I mean, that's something that obviously is going to, everybody's going to make money off that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that is, uh, again, another incentive for venues to do business with not only Live Nation, but it's Live Nation's partner and Ticketmaster. And there's always the kind of unstated threat that, oh, if you, if you uh, go go sideways on one of us, things can get bad on the other end. So you pull the plug on Ticketmaster. Maybe you're not going to get Metallica in the future. You're not going to get mm. Taylor. You know, you're not going to get these acts. And so that's you know, I think that's been that's something that's finally being raised. That's very important and that should have been uh, at the forefront when the merger was announced, mm-hmm. because the the ability for a combined company to leverage that is, I mean, that's. Uh, I think it should have been obvious and it wasn't uh, aggressively pursued uh, enough, I don't think. And is that to to like tie this back into earlier when we were talking about uh, record labels, is this where having that, um, that contract with the record label is potentially so beneficial is that that label is promoting you to some somebody like Live Nation, like, hey, we've got this great musical act. It, it would do great at these venues in such and such region. You know, put them on and you know get them in these venues. You know, I I think on the one hand, you're right. I mean, the, the label can definitely help get your foot in the door with uh, you know a promoter, and then you'll be able to you know grow and you know blossom as a live act and then your your deals and your splits get better and better the more the bigger your draw is the the flip of that and this is still very prevalent because this is what happened when the bottom fell out on the uh the the physical sales of music is that the label now is entering into deals these the 360 deals where they're getting pieces of everything they're getting you know pieces of the live the the, the live gross, the the merchandise. And I mean, those are, um, again, those are things that work for some acts and then don't really work for other acts. And I, I mean, in my experience, like I, I would not counsel a smaller act to go into those types of deals because that's, then you're basically totally relying on that label to, con, you know, it's going to be the paymaster for all, you know, all of your 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 resources and you're on tour you need to buy food traditionally you know 
you sell enough merch to go to Taco Bell or something. And now it's, you know, and, and not to say that that still can't be done, but it's just a nut, somebody else in your pocket, in your small little pot of money that you're supposed to keep. Now you got to fork this over too. It's like, come on. Like, it's a little bit, it's overreach. Yeah. I've heard of that, that 360 deal. Um, so like you were saying, is that's essentially the label <laughs> can take what you make off of things that are not even anything to do with recording music, like you said, uh, a concert appearance and how much money you generate from that. Correct. And wow. merch, uh, which is another huge, huge wow. sale. I mean, so you're, you're, and I mean, obviously the, 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 uh, the percentages are, are negotiated is going to be kind of, they'll be stepped because of the, uh, you know, based on the popularity and the, you know, the, the act itself. But at the end of the day, you've got a, you're you're forking over more of the revenue to the label for things that have nothing to do with the sale of uh, recorded music. <laughs> wow. I yeah, that's tough. Jeez. Um, I I wanted to ask you about um con- concerts and what if what if you don't sell. As an artist, what if you don't sell out an arena or you have a really poor showing? Uh, the famous example I saw recently was a rapper, if you're familiar, of uh, DaBaby. Yeah. And he had some very uh, not great ticket sales where to the point where uh, there was people were making fun of him on social media for having like uh, buy one, get one free tickets. In situations like that, is it is it not only as an artist you're you're not going to make a lot of money just because not a lot of people are coming, but at any point do you have to pay back any sort of money just because you're not filling the seats and there was an expectation that oh you're going to sell out this arena, but you know it's only a quarter fulfilled and the venue's pissed at you because they're not going to make their money. Does it kind of work like that? Well. What you see a lot of times is that the the act and th- that risk traditionally is going to fall on the promoter, so the, okay. the artist isn't going to have to you know pay money out of, out of his pocket any more than he's already agreed to give up in, in his agreement. So you'll have like a, a live nation will you know have approached you know and structure something with the baby to or you know say hey we're going to have you do you know twenty five dates throughout the U S and Canada. And then it's on, you know, and we're going to give you a flat, flat fee or a, you know, a, a certain amount per, you know, per show or, but it's usually like built in. So there's a whole formula behind it. Um, but then they, so if there's a, you know, if sales don't go well at, at one of the shows, the Live Nation is very smart about this. To they they know the the business and the trends well enough to where they're going to be able to re, to recover. Um, say it shows bad in Denver, but it kills it in Atlanta. Mm-hmm. They, they have that built in to that th- that payout to the baby. Okay. So it's uh, I mean it's, it's the so the, the artist isn't usually going to take that hit. Okay. Um, it, it, it would traditionally fall on the promoter, but it all comes down to what kind of deals that the artist structured with the promoter because there an artist could there's a very good possibility too that an artist 
could roll the dice and say, hey, I want to, I'm going to, you know, have a, you know, more skin in the game than usual. And I'm going to, you know, I'm going to roll the dice and hope that I kill it on this tour. And then it doesn't end up happening. Well, then the artist gets burned. Oh, I see what you're saying. Okay. Yeah. So if, I mean, I could totally see a bigger artist. Yeah. That could pay out like a, like Drake on this tour. I'm sure he's going to sell sell out oh yeah or like of metallica these. metallica yeah. yeah but uh but you know not as big of an artist yeah that's a huge yeah risk yeah and, and so that's why again it comes down to you know having good terms in your agreements with your you know with your promoters and you know when you're trying to plan these tours and you know book it depending on who's responsible for actually doing all the logistical work behind it, making sure that you've got a structure in place to where you're not uh, struggling to find food every night after you you know, perform for two hours. Yeah. Um, and some bands, I mean, that that's the reality for, you know, indie bands that go and, you know, take these, you know, in, in a Ford Econoline go around the country. Uh, and there's all sorts of things that can happen um, where it's, you know, could just be bad promotion for a show. And, you know, you got, 10 people show up to a gig. It's like, dude, I got to get from Detroit to Pittsburgh. Like, how, what am I going to do? And, you know, it, for the most part, it, it's, it, it seems to work itself out. But, like, and having friends that have been at various levels in the business, um, things can get real, real tough. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, people have these uh, delusions that everybody's living this, you know, um, Motley Crue 1980s life, you know, gr- grand- grandeur, but it, anything but man <laughs> oh, I could totally see that totally um so the promoter the promoters are savvy enough to understand okay this artist wants to we're, we're going to go on tour in 2023 and maybe the artist is thinking I'm going to hit every major city in the United States but promoters are savvy enough to say well you know okay you're from atlanta you do really well in the south not a lot of people listen to you in new york city in the east coast so we're not going to go tour up there we're going to tailor your tour to you know atlanta orlando miami you know dallas what have you around the south do they kind of do that sort of analysis when planning this kind of stuff? Hundred percent, absolutely. Yeah. And it's, I mean, it's at a, it's at a level that's sufficiently granular to where it's it's insane the amount of data. And now they have all these these this information that they can crunch and plug in and kind of look at the general returns from the venue from the area. And I mean, even though you know COVID flipped the live game on its head they still are equipped with the knowledge to where they can make informed decisions about, hey, here's how we want to book. Um, here's what we think you should do. Here's the regions and territories we think you should hit. And here's what you should kind of, we're not going to go heavy. And maybe you do one New York date, but you're not doing a whole East Coast tour if you're, you know, want to stay and you know your money is going to be made in the South. Mm-hmm. At least, you know, if you're at a point in the career where you don't want to be in the upside down. Mm-hmm. And- is it uh would it be like the same for the size of the venue too like hey you're just up and coming 
we're not going to put you in the Mercedes-Benz Superdome. We're going to put you in just a nice little, like the Royal Oak Music Theater. <laughs> no, you know, a little bit smaller venue. It's not Little Caesars, something like that. So is that also taken into? 100%. Yeah. 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 Yep. You, I mean, you look at what, you know, where the act is at in their career, what the act, uh, you know, what their numbers are, what you think is going to be, you know, what kind of capacity and what kind of demand you think there's going to be, and then kind of plug it in based on, uh, you know, the, uh, the, what's going to be most suitable mm-hmm. for that particular act at that particular point in time. Wow. Yeah. There's so much that goes into this. Right. Wow. It's crazy. <laughs> yeah. I do. I, I've been, I, again, it's, it's, so, it's, and it's, and the game keeps changing and that's why it's, you know, people, you know, the, the managers, the attorneys, the accounts, everybody does the best that they can, but it's really, it's something that you just got to do your best to stay on the pulse of because yeah. it's, you know, even it's still constantly evolving mm-hmm. and it's trying to wrap all these, you know, all this interplay is, you know, tough enough for, for me. And I'm not the one writing the songs. I'm not the one playing, uh-huh. you know, two, two hours on stage every night. I'm not the one, you know, traveling from venue A to venue B. So you can't expect musicians to be on top of all this stuff. It's just unreasonable. Mm-hmm. So I think that just underscores the need for, you know, you got to musicians to uh, just find, you know, good, good counsel and have the, uh, have the ability to make these decisions because it's something that's just, you, you can't expect them to do. Mm-hmm. And when people clown on these musicians, well, you shouldn't have signed that deal. Well, it's like, dude, hindsight's twenty twenty. Yeah. And were you the musician? Were you the dude on tour? No. So, you know, respectfully sit down, you know, it's, 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 it's easy to like, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty. it's easy for people to, you know, clown on these poor decisions, but you know, you, you don't never know unless you're in the shoes of the artist, what's going on. Mm-hmm. Now, as far as you, your clients go, have you ever had clients who just are just the songwriters so they don't perform at all you know they're not i don't know if uh, i wouldn't say they're musicians maybe they still are but they're just plain songwriters do have you had clients like that and is that is the game different for somebody who strictly is writing lyrics versus somebody who's performing them very yeah, it's a totally different. Yeah, the the whole the the business is very very different. Does it also go for? Is there also a difference now between the songwriting, um, the 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 musician, and then like if this is uh, speaking of like rap, hip hop, like the person who's producing the beats, like the beat maker. Yes. Yeah, and yeah. And, and the beat the the producer provisions and that's something i've done uh quite a few deals on and that's something that's continued to evolve too because of how you know the sampling laws and and everything else with that with it with the copyright uh legislation and precedent has has come into play so that is all yeah those are all separate facets so what Mm -hmm. i mean so what you know points you or terms you'd want in a song in a songwriter agreement for your client it's going to be totally, totally different than, you know, when it comes to a producer. And um, is it usually, I mean, usually if you have a band, usually the person performing is also writing, would you say? Like that usually, 
like Drake, well, Drake's not a great example because he's, people have said he's had ghostwriters, <laughs> but somebody like Kendrick Lamar, um, he writes his raps and then he performs them. Is that usually how it goes in music? So that would depend on a lot of times the particular genre. So if, you know, in the pop, you know, these top 40 industry. Justin Bieber. And, and it's not, yeah, yeah he, he's not writing his, uh, maybe, yeah, to my understanding, he's not writing some lyrics. Um, so you, you have, you know, and at, at that point you've got, you know, a whole, you've got your songwriter and then you've got the actual performing uh, musician. So, and that kind of dove, dovetails with how the copyright split because you've got the part that's the composition and then you've got the part that's the recording. So, okay. So when the song's played on, I guess the radio is a bad example because song is played on the radio. The people that have the interest in the composition part of the copyright, that, that piece of the pie, they're getting money. But the actual artist that whose recording is being played on the, on the radio are not getting uh, paid. Really? There's, uh, there's, I think it's like fairness in music. There's some sort of act that's that finally the U.S. I think at the time, like we finally got on top of this, but just to show you how backwards things were before this, it was, I believe the U.S., (laughs) Iran and North Korea were the only countries that weren't like compensating the artists for the recorded, uh, uh, you know, playing recorded music on terrestrial radio. It's nuts. It just shows how, again, how difficult it is to make make it as a musician. Mm-hmm. Jeez, well, I know North Korea doesn't. Uh, North Korea is big into, or no, that's South Korea's K-pop. Yes, they're really big into K-pop. Yeah, I've heard horror stories with K-pop artists. Yeah, uh, and apparently, like you know, I, I read something like recently about the, just talk about consolidation because there's a power struggle right now between the, uh, it, these K-pop, uh, the, one of the entities that owns all these K-pop rights, and then the one of the streaming services itself. So that just it, again, it just people start. You got too many hands hands in the cookie jar, and it turns into a real mess. Mm-hmm. Jeez, <laughs> yeah, it's wild, man. It's a crazy business. <laughs> With with the songwriting aspect of of music, is that where is that where publishing fits in to go back to what we were talking about way earlier? Um or is Yes. Oh, does it yeah. Yeah. And well and, and so it, I mean if if you're a songwriter and, and you know, one of the I think the best examples like you look at like a um like the country music industry. Um and you know I'm this this writer, and I want to get my my lyrics linked up and have them performed by you know a up and coming uh, country act, and you know so you, what you'd want to do is get um, a lot of times what writers will do will, will, they will get signed to these companies that then go and pitch these so- these written songs and place them with the musicians, huh. and then you then the output is this you know recorded the song that you know embodies both your written the you know her lyrics and you know his uh recording of it wow yeah so it's a totally different um i mean it interplays with the recorded side of it but but it's it's a whole whole nother world too and there's a lot of money in there 
Yeah. I mean, if you can, if you can get, get the right plugs and, and start getting a name and have, if, if your, your paperwork's on point, yeah, you can make a, a great deal of money from the, uh, the composition side. Wow. So you actually have, you actually have people out there that all they would do, all they do is just write songs and just say, Hey, I just wrote this, wrote this great song and I think you should perform it. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, I mean, it's still, and again, that's, that's why I gave like the, the Nashville country example, cause that's uh-huh. still very prevalent, but in the fifties, um, there was in New York is a Brill building. And what they'd have is all of these writers in these small little rooms in, in this big building in New York, like with pianos. And they would just kind of hammer out like, you know, words and lyrics and just, it made some of the, you know, some amazing and just touchstone, you know, rock and roll songs. And you've got like a, uh, Goffin and King or Lieber and Stoller. I mean, these were people that were, that was what they did. Mm-hmm. And then once these songs got, you know, plugged with, uh, with an act or, you know, that some act would, uh, take them on, do a recording covering. And it, and it wasn't uncommon for several acts to do their version of one of these songs. And so if you're the, the composer and if your, your, your deal's right, you've got four lanes of money to make off this one writing. Mm-hmm. So Jeez. it's, I mean, and so that's the, that's the aspect to where you can really, you can make a lot of money mm-hmm. um, if you're in charge of that. But a lot of times in order to get the exposure and to get that plug into the, the Nashville or with these, these uh, pop acts, you're going to have to give up a piece of that. Mm, okay. Yeah. Wow. Jeez. Let, let me ask you this to uh, pivot a little bit. Um, masters. And I've heard this term thrown out a lot lately. Um, in in the rap world, there's a lot of a lot of talk on. Oh, you got to own your masters. Um, what does does that mean that you own you hundred percent own your song, like the the recording of your song, and you control you control the rights and uh, licensing, what have you of that, of that song versus the traditionally like the label would have control over your recording. That's a good, yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's actually, that's, that's accurate. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. That's a good summary of it. And it, it seems like there's been a movement. I, I, but I don't know. I could be wrong that, you know, a lot of artists now they want their, their masters, uh, their rights to their music. Um, I know that that example earlier we gave of uh, Big Sean, because I know Kanye went on a, um, he was saying how oh, I want control of my masters. Then Big Sean said, well, I don't even have control of my masters, but you want control of yours. So it's kind of, you're being kind of like hypocritical in a way. I think he ended up making it right, but um, yeah, it, do a lot is that kind of the situation that a lot of artists are in they are not in complete control over the music that they make for these record labels 
Um, generally, yes. Uh, you know, when, when you're signing these deals, you're it's pretty much you know you're gonna give up some piece of that uh, recorded copyright mm-hmm. that the so the master the one encouraging thing for the artists that I've seen that's really proliferated uh, recently is there's the uh, what's, what's what's called a copyright reversion or a termination and what that is is after 35 years um, and just to kind of put put it like recently I, I think MC search was talking about how third base just was recently able to have theirs uh, their reversion take place or for another example people were everybody was asking well you know with with uh, the the Jay-Z and the uh, the Nas uh, DJ search with the Illmatic, the masters that like well why 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 didn't why didn't Nasir put what doesn't he want to own his own music is like no because Nasir is smart enough to recognize that hey the window is going to open real soon on Illmatic, I'm going to be able to exercise my termination right I'm going to get it back anyway so yeah so you know hey you want to lease it and pay me X amount and you want to have two years of you know the last two years before I get it back, fine. Mm. So that that was the mechanics of that. So it, it's basically, it's a statutory um, grant to allow artists to be able to recapture their works. Um, it's one of the, it, it's, because the, the copyright, there's a lot of copyright laws that don't help artists, so it's one of those things that's in statute that, that has proved to be very, uh, very beneficial. Mm. Okay. So would that be, would you say, is that an advantage of not, could could that potentially be an advantage of not being a part of a record label? Is that, hey, I, I just own my masters, like outright, as just being independent? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, certainly, certainly. But, but then you're going to have to figure out, okay, how am I going to do my promotion? How yeah. am I gonna, you know, drive visibility? And now, you know, the, the games change so much to where it's like people have access to so much music, which is a wonderful thing. But how do you stand out amongst the six million or you know, how many choices they have on Spotify when they look, you know, listen to it? So it's kind of the the give and take. Because mm-hmm. if I mean, yeah. yeah, you can own your masters. I mean, hell. <laughs> The, the two of the, the records I gave you for like the uh, Livernois, like me and my brother's bands, we are our masters, but they're not worth too much. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> so it's it, it just kind of comes to, um, you know, what you want to do with it and, and how you mm-hmm. perceive and want to pursue your, you know, your musical output. Mm. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So there, there's a give and a take. Always. With it. Yeah. Um, I had heard. Earlier I had mentioned uh, Bad Bunny and I heard DJ Academics talk about how Bad Bunny is not only, you know, one of the top streamed artists, but Bad Bunny is independent. But then when he went to break it down, it's not independent in the way that I thought it meant independent in that Bad Bunny still has a distribution deal through i think it was sony so to me when i think independent i think okay i'm doing everything on my own but still for bad bunny okay maybe maybe he's not attached to he has his own 
like promotional marketing team, but he still has to get his music out there to the world. Um, yeah, I, I just, I, I had a different notion of being independent versus maybe like the technical, like <laughs> meeting the threshold of independence. Well, no I, no, I think your notion's correct. And that's, I think that's how, you know, a lot of people would perceive it. And I think, you know, if you want to look at like examples of like truly, you know, in, independent for the most part acts, like you look at like a, like a, a Fugazi or something like, you know, where you've got an, an act that's kind of in control of, you know, their touring, their music, their everything. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, even with, with a Fugazi, Fugazi's album's got to get from where they get pressed to the record store. Mm-hmm. So there's going to be some kind of, you know, reliance on a distributor. People just don't really, you know, you don't consider it because it's not one of the fundamental, uh, you know, core things that come to mind. And that's fair. Yeah. Um, and it's just, you know, learning about, you know, and, and working in that distribution side of it. So it opens up your eyes like, wow, you know, it's really there is a purpose here and that's, you know, and, you know, now with the digital platform, certainly, I mean, I, I think an, an artist like uh, Bad Bunny would need to have some sort of uh, valve to be able to get his stuff out there, get his stuff placed and, you know, be able to uh, get as, you know, much compensation as he can from his work being exploited. Mm-hmm. And I know, I know a lot, we've been talking a lot on the artist side of things. Um I was wondering if I could switch it with you to the perspective of a record label and is the job of somebody working at the these record labels like how hard is their job in just finding talent for the record label cuz I got to imagine you can't just sign anybody to a record contract. I mean, I guess you could, but then you won't have a job for very long if they don't blow up, <laughs> yeah. or there's not some, yeah, some movement. yeah. So are like are these record labels? I guess is it kind of like a professional football team where there's an you have the NFL draft coming up, and hey, I'm not going to just draft anybody. I need to draft, you know where I need people. I like this year, we really need a quarterback. So we, with our first round pick, that's of utmost important to us. We're going to draft a quarterback. Is, are those kind of thoughts running through a label's mind? Like, okay, we need to kind of be picky with who we select here to offer a contract. Absolutely. And, and, you know, certain labels historically are, have certain strengths in certain genres. For example, you know, Def Jam and hip hop, mm-hmm. or like Electra in in hard rock. Um, I think Electra's been gobbled up by somebody else, but but just you know, for, or Roadrunner uh, with metal. So you know, you, you're looking at your historical strength and your what your current roster, and evaluating. Okay, you know, how, how am I going to be able? Is is this gonna? Is this something we're going to be able to take and run with, and it is going to work out for everybody. Um, and so that's, you know, that's definitely something that goes into um, signing these acts. And it's, another thing is just, you know, personalities. Are these, you know, are these artists going to be, you know, are these guys' egos out of control? Are these guys going to be able to come to these promotional events? Are these guys going to be able to do radio? Um, you know, if we book them all these appearances, are they going to just make asses out of themselves? Mm. And that that's a thing that definitely happens. And that's people are, so there's a lot of, 
and that has those are things that have nothing to do with the music right Pretty, you know it's just personalities and you know logistics and strategy um, because the labels themselves are going to have the relationships with the you know with the radio people or they're, they're going to have radio people on staff that are doing the promo mm-hmm. so it's it's going to come down to what the label knows it's best at historically what the label where the label wants to go and how much resources the label has to put behind developing acts which unfortunately is nowhere near what it used to be uh, because I mean yeah, the labels aren't flush with cash like they were in the 90s and 2000s and mm-hmm. early 2000s. But, I mean, ideally, as the, you know, we've got this resurgence of physical sales, I mean, the labels are still, now they're, they don't have to do anything because they're, you know, a lot of them are just reissuing stuff that they put out years ago um, and they're selling like, you know, like hotcakes. Mm-hmm. So the label, you know, can, if, you know, assuming that, you know, uh, Led Zeppelin, for example, or somebody like, you know, of the, these these classic rock acts haven't recaptured their copyright. The label can still exploit them. The label can press all these vi- you know these vinyl records, and it's just it's a payday. They don't have to do anything. Yeah. So, <laughs> and at that point, the the you know hopefully you would see the label reinvesting those monies into building back artist development where it needs to be to help these acts that they sign and watch them blossom and grow like the same way. You know, like a Aaron Rodgers under Brett Favre, and I, I don't like either of those guys. But I'm saying, like, you know, those those to, to have somebody watch and to have that that you know to to be able to grow as a professional, whether it be athlete or musician, and then when it comes time to be able to really okay, your third album, we got you with the right producer. We're gonna push this hard, and then let it go. Same way, you know, letting somebody debut and take take over that quarterback position. I see what you're saying. Yeah, I like I like the sports analogies. I I really connect with those. So I, I appreciate the yeah. Brett Favre and yeah. Or, 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 or I mean, sorry to interrupt. Um, no, absolutely. I was just I mean, yeah. sports analogy. Look at look at my look at minor league baseball. I mean, before you get called up to the show, you're there for a you'll be there for a long time if you ever get called up. Oh yeah. And so that I, I think you know historically, traditionally, you'd have labels. They had no problem with having you kind of incubate and you know refine your skill set in those minor leagues. And when it's time to you know get called up, put that money behind you, put that promo out, get that that you know get, get that press and publicity. They knew you were ready, and that's why when you don't have that, you see a lot of acts that just don't have the longevity because they never were you know built for it or you know had the just time to develop as, as both artists and people, mm-hmm. you know? Wow. Do, do you think, too, these these uh, labels are kind of like what we were talking about earlier with uh, the data and analytics side of um, these venues and selling tickets and, and going on tour? Are the labels, too very abreast of current trends, current analytics, and say, you know, trying to think of like an example, um, in, in hip hop drill music is there was kind of a wave. I don't know if it's still here, but there was a really big wave where lots of drill artists were very popular. Do you think these labels have, sit-downs and meetings where they say, okay, 
drill music is really hot right now. We would love to get an artist who is in this subgenre onto our label and start, you know, having them produce music for our label. That's drill music because it's the hottest thing right now. And we think that we can make, we can make money off that. We can make a return on investment. Are they kind of using the same analytics? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and, and it's something that, you know, with these, uh, to, I guess, to age myself, because I, I, I've seen this happen. When MySpace was so huge, you know, in the mid, late 2000s, as a resource for music to, you know, have all these, you got these unsigned acts that are top of these charts. Mm-hmm. Um, and you also had avenues like, you know, retailers like uh, like Smart Punk and, and other places that would have, you know, you could actually see what these acts that had no backing were doing and the kind of, you know, uh, sales and attention they were generating. It was, I mean, not even, I want, not, it was not uncommon. It was a, almost everybody was looking at those charts and plucking the top bands off them. And that's how you got that whole emo core, uh, that movement that, you know, late, late 2000s and on. And an act that, you know, has really been kind of the, that, that came into that, but has now just become so much bigger than that is, is like, like a fall up boy. Oh, yeah. uh, and they're still around and they're, they're, they're killing it. Yeah. But I, I think there, that was a, a, uh, an act that, you know, came up, you know, playing, playing punk shows, playing clubs were tight, you know, tight musicians wrote good lyrics and have been able to continually um, just grow develop their fan base be you know it's not you know you watch sunday night football you're gonna hear at least one follow-up boy song before a commercial <laughs> but it's like good for them you know what i'm saying yeah. but not all you know a lot of acts weren't uh, poised to be able to do that but so to, to answer your question i think it's something that the labels absolutely are abreast of and i think the, ad, the analytic aspect of it's only probably just growing mm-hmm. um just as it has in, in baseball mm. or you know any any sport to be oh, honest. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Your your MySpace example reminds me of I mean just like a few years ago there was a huge SoundCloud uh rap movement where you had people these young kids um like like little pump uh XXS Tension um there's a there's many other examples but yeah they they would just put out their music on soundcloud and it would generate tons of listens so yeah labels you think labels were definitely like paying attention to those things 100 percent because they're i mean these people that work at the labels i mean these these are people that are it's not dudes in suits in corner offices it's people that are out there going to the shows talking to the people at the record store they're in the you know their ears to the ground so they they know they know where the where the heat is and they know where things are probably going to go so these are very 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 smart people mm-hmm. um and it's just you know it's unfortunate that there's not a more of a careers in that industry and hopefully as the labels continue to make cash that it can it can expand a little more because it, it i worked with some phenomenal people and just to, to see that type of talent it's it's a cool job and it's it's something that these people are absolutely looking at all those different avenues to be mm-hmm. able to really 
not only grow their careers, but like bring on these acts and help help them grow. Yeah. I've even heard, you know, with with streaming services now, how global music has gotten. Like we mentioned K-pop earlier. I went to a K-pop show actually. You did? <laughs> yeah. How was it? <laughs> it was it was a lot of fun. Right on. It was so much fun. Um I couldn't I I don't remember the groups that I saw, um, but from what I heard, because I went with a friend who is very big into K-pop, and he said, these groups that you saw here tonight, they're selling out stadiums back in Korea. And I just saw them in this little little venue in Texas, small little venue, not a lot of people there. And I, for the life of me, I, w- I would have never have thought that I'd see a K-pop show. Uh, and Justin, do you think streaming services have made music more like global and like the spread of music from all these other countries? Like, I mean, it's just way more available now that you get exposed to K-pop as an example. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. I mean, like, just the the fact that you know, you going to that K-pop show in Texas, and even though it might not have been the stadium that it would be from their native land, the mm-hmm. fact that they're getting booked at these smaller venues all the way across the world, mm-hmm. I mean, I think it speaks to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I've, heard, I've heard that Latin music is really big right now, which is why you see a guy like Bad Bunny that is uh, so popular. Um I and I would have never have thought that. I don't really listen to Latin music. I mean, I've I remember back in the day, uh, Daddy Yankee. Oh yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> but other than that, I just I, I I would have never have thought it. But lo and behold, it's hugely popular. Um, do do you think labels also take that into um, consideration nowadays and? Like music isn't just a U.S. thing now; it's like a worldwide thing. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's you know the bigger labels have all you know Latin American offices, and you know, and they'll have their U.S. flagship for Latin America in Miami. Um, and, okay. and it's it's a huge. Uh, I mean, and a lot of times it, they make so much money that it's a completely separate. You know, I think might have Universal Latin and Universal Music Group, but it could just be you know, totally different ownership. Um, because it's that it can stand on its own, mm-hmm. um, and, and you, you. But you're right with the, the Daddy Yankee example. <laughs> um, I, and there was, you know, I read around because that was when I was like interning uh, at Island Def Jam, and I remember one of the signings for like Rockefeller at that time was what, like uh, he- Hector the Father, like he, same kind of like reggaeton. And I think he had it was it was and it was through Rockefeller. The album sucked, but uh, <laughs> it just shows you that there there's still you know people are keeping their their eyes and ears to what's going on throughout the world for sure. Mm-hmm. That's really cool. Um, I have uh, one last question for you, sure. and so I've been like firing questions at you for over two hours now. <laughs> I just this topic is so fascinating, and I. I truly appreciate your um, your expertise on this. Uh, you ever, with artists who pass and their music, their music continues on, but 
I mean, there's been a lot of examples in rap. Most recently, I guess, um, you had artists like Pop Smoke, um, Nipsey Hussle, um, XXX. Uh, I mean, the list goes on and on. Mac Miller. Now, they pass on. But we can still play their music. And I guess I'm wondering... Does it get into a tricky situation when artists pass on and their music's still making money for somebody, but where does it go now? Does it, the percentage that the artist was making, does now that percentage just go straight to the record label? I don't, do you ever deal with stuff like that? Yes. And it's, uh, it can be a nightmare. Um, Trying to put, an already complex puzzle together. It's like, okay, look, all right, put on a blindfold. Now put the puzzle together. Because you not only have to track, okay, where's the money going, but who's entitled to the money? Because you've got, and again, this, you know, with, with a, you know, a lot of musicians, there was no, you know, they didn't have a, a state planning attorney. They, they didn't have these things set up for their passing. So where does it go? And then you have also these this litigation that pops up between heirs trying to claim rights to, you know, you've already got a sliver of the pie. Now you got to split the sliver into four different pieces. Who's got, you know, is that the, is that the correct result or who's got superior claim to that? Mm -hmm. So it just triggers a whole, just a whole, uh, panoply of just, uh, problems and, and questions and in and, and, and truth I, I mean I, I've been able and fortunately I've, I've been able to navigate and finesse some of those things successfully but I will say just you know in the Detroit area generally I mean look at what happened with the, the Jay Dilla estate mm. there was all sorts of controversy about that because there was some uh, some mistakes made with the people who were originally responsible for the estate and then there was tension with um, you know with with his mother um, who's still alive and tension with, uh, you know, DJ house shoes and, you know, it just really, so, and, and that's a simple, that's where you got three players. Now imagine you've got a, a band like, like a parliament funkadelic and you've got, you know, five or six people making, you know, contributing both to the writing and to the music. And you got people passing away. You've got multiple heirs and now you're trying to figure out where things go from that end i mean it's, it could be a nightmare yeah jeez i would want to be in a situation like that jeez yeah no it's uh and, and it's it's unfortunate when you you're counseling somebody and you have to you know I, one of the things that i've always thought is that, you know you, you don't i'm not gonna bs you i'm gonna you know i i, I feel like i owe that to my clients just to like i'm not gonna you know, throw you a bunch of puffery if I'm not going to be able to back up. If I tell you, like, hey, you've got, I'm going to be able to help you out. I'm going to follow this through. I'm a, you know, I t- word is very important. And you, unfortunately, I've had consultations with people to where it's, it's been so, you know, just blowing up on the, the document side of it to where it's like, dude, I, you know, you have to explain to them that it's, you know, I, unfortunately, I, you know, I, I don't think that there's a good, outcome for you here and i don't want you to put good money after bad mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so and can can something like just 
having estate planning kind of mitigate a lot of issues when this sort of thing happens? Absolutely. Yeah. I It's funny. I actually, I interviewed a guy who wrote, he wrote a novel. Um, it was called To Save to Save a Nation. Uh, his name's Robert Cass, and he's actually a lawyer. He's an estate planning um, lawyer. I don't know if I don't know if that's like the exact title, but that's yeah, no, what that's he. It is, yeah. it, that's what he does. Yeah, for his full time job, um, and then he writes on the side. Um, so it's kind of yeah, it's funny. That was like one of the first interviews I did, and it all comes back full circle. Like, I guess. Hey, it, it does, man. <laughs> and I, I think that just again underscores the the fact that you know, as a musician. Um, your accountant and your attorney are going to be two of your best friends and the ones that you should be, you know, select carefully and, you know, think long-term because there has to be that, that unity and that shared vision mm-hmm. because it all, you know, to, you know, to ride off into the sunset, you got to have the, uh, the pieces in place. And so that's how everything works together. Yeah. <laughs> well, Aaron, uh, this has been a real pleasure and, I know I've just bombarded you with tons of questions on this on this topic that but I find it truly fascinating um and I truly appreciate your expertise and um you coming down here sitting down here with me and talking to me about it uh it's been a lot of fun it was my pleasure that Chris thank you again man <laughs> yeah thank you and um for for people who want to get into contact with you um is is the web, uh, your law firm's website is that the best way to contact you yeah that's so um either that or yeah aaron sylvanus at conlin rabinovitz and uh that should have uh my contact information there um and yeah i'm always happy to take meetings and always willing to to talk and hopefully help new clients out however i can so i again chris i appreciate the opportunity it's my pleasure man <laughs> oh yeah no th- thank you so much again um another thing are you on social media at all i am um yeah. twitter or... i you know what i i have an instagram i don't do the twitter anymore and you know i've got a two-year-old and a four-year-old and you know much again much love to my beautiful wife Lindsay and my kids joan and gabriel but i just don't have time for it anymore yeah. man. and I, I feel like people don't really want it like what's what's this 37 year old guy with two kids got to say like i don't know it's with the twitter i don't know the instagram i have uh facebook i have you know under my name but um yeah so and i try you know i'm gonna try to get uh as this Ticketmaster thing progresses, mm-hmm. you know, because I have uh, experience and p- published work out there through an- American Antitrust Institute, you might see me popping my head back up on, on some some things. So we'll see. Very cool. Well, uh, Aaron, thanks again. Really appreciate it. And thank you to everybody out there for listening. Uh, my name is Chris. This has been Cheetash. Take care, everybody.